Welcome to the Nonprofit Insider. On this podcast, we give a little bit more of a commentary feel to some of the things that are happening in the nonprofit space. And we're not just talking fundraising either. We talk about all the aspects of being in the nonprofit world, the people, the relationship, the news, the politics, and the money that all comes with being in this world. Stick around. Welcome back to the Nonprofit Insider Podcast. Like we do in every episode, I want to start off with a, with a news topic. And every now and then, something comes across your desk and you just rejoice because you want you have a good talking topic. And let's be honest, we like a little bit of mess. <laughs> Society, the internet, it, it's, it's a cesspool sometimes. And so every now and then you hear a story you wish you could kind of didn't want to hear, but you're like, well, well got to kind of go talk about it. And, and a few weeks ago, Russell Wilson was in the news. And so Russell Wilson, former quarterback for the Seattle Seahawks, he's now quarterback for the Denver Broncos, obviously a big brand in the NFL. I love sports. I know who he is. And a lot of people know who he is, right? Married to Sierra, beautiful family, beautiful kids, the, the whole nine. So he has a foundation called the Russell Wilson Foundation, and it actually does business as the Why Not You Foundation. So they present checks under the Why Not You Foundation. That's how people identify them. And an article came out, got to give credit where credit was due. Uh, USA Today did an investigation piece. The author, Jason Wolf, did a really good job basically talking about how the foundation has a lot of money that they spend on charity, on on salaries, but not on charity activities or charitable activities. And it just made the rounds, right? And I know there's been a lot of folks that have been talking about it. So you know what? I'm going to throw my name in the hat. I'm going to talk about it because it's so fascinating when you have high-profile individuals like Russell Wilson status that have foundations. And look, it's nothing new. A lot of athletes, a lot of high-profile people have foundations to one degree or another. But one of the things I found very interesting in the article was they basically talked about how much of the money they spend on salaries. And so, of course, look, I love a good 990 report. I love being able to take the time to read a tax return, kind of get some insights. And so after reading this article, I was like, well, let me look for myself. And look, I put this on my LinkedIn page. I'm going to, I said it there. I'm going to say it now. Where there's smoke, there's fire. And I know there are a good amount of nonprofits that exist out there that are able to use a 501c status to shift money around. You can use a 501c, and a lot of organizations do this. For-profits do this legally, right? It's all legal, but a lot of people do it, and that's when you start getting into conversations of the 1% is not paying taxes. People are using loopholes to avoid paying taxes, uh, forms of nepotism. People are using 501c's, and specifically 501c3's to shift money around. That's advantageous to avoiding taxes, to benefiting family members, to basically being, to to putting themselves in a position to reap some of the rewards, and you can use it in a form of of charity. We're doing amazing things for the community, but really you're getting some kickbacks, which is, again, it's legal, there's nothing wrong with that, but where there's smoke, there's fire. And it's pretty glaring. When you look at the 2029-90 
for the Russell Wilson Foundation, you can tell on the very first page, look, something's up. When you have five, approximately $550,000 of salary and other compensation and employee benefits, but you've only given out $300,000 in grants, something something's going on here. And when one of the things that I saw a lot of people kind of talking about on the internet is looking at the number of people that make money at this particular organization. The the highest um the highest compensated employee in the organization is the chief strategy officer. He's getting or they're getting $208,000 a year. The director is getting 166 a thousand, and they have another director getting sixty-six thousand. There's only, according to this, three employees at that high of a level making up more than a hundred thousand dollars, right? But when you only have that many employees making that much money compared to how much you're doling out, listen, you you can you can you can release a press release on your website. You can say this, that, and the other. But the IRS doesn't care about that. They're looking at these numbers and they're saying, wow, the amount of compensation that the highest ranking individuals are making is way higher than the amount of grants or charity contributions that are being doled out. There's smoke. We need to investigate to make sure there isn't fire. And so then when you're spending a hundred and again, 63000 in payroll taxes, $80,000 in legal, $38,000 in accounting, you're spending money, and rightfully so, on advertising and information technology and all of that stuff. That's all fine. There's nothing wrong with working at a nonprofit and making $200,000. But when you've only given away $300,000, their IRS is going to say, eh, something's up with that. We might need to investigate because that could be a form of excessive pay. The people that are in the Russell Wilson Foundation might be making more money than the societies than societies um, would would agree with, and so definitely something to keep up with. I'm sure we'll hear more information. Check out that USA Today article. I'm gonna put it in the show show notes. Very interesting stuff. And here's the thing, I'm gonna leave it with this: Russell Wilson's this this organization is probably not the only one. There's other organizations, again, that use the 501c status for all types of advantages. And I'm not saying that there's something necessarily nefarious here or something wrong or illegal, but there are going to be some people that are going to be taking some closer looks at the Russell Wilson Foundation from here on out. It'll be interesting to see what changes they make. Back in early 2010, I started doing an internship for my final semester in college with an organization in Asheville. And that's where I went to college, so I've mentioned that a few times before. And I started doing an internship with this organization called On Track Financial Education and Counseling. And what's super funny is I, I went to their website because I was like, you know what, I want to just make sure I have some of the information, right? It's been you know, 13, 12, 13 years since I was there. And I Funny enough, I was looking at their 990 report, again, which is another reason why I'm always talking about companies, nonprofits need to put their 990 on their websites, but we know a lot of them aren't. And their actual name is not even called on track. Their actual name is called Consumer 
Credit Counseling of Western North Carolina, Inc. So I thought that was pretty funny. So I start interning with this, this local nonprofit, and they do a lot of things that you would imagine a financial education nonprofit would do. They do tax prep. They do help with uh, helping people get better credit or improve their credit. They do money classes. They had a really big program related around home buying. So if you're looking to buy a home in like that Western North Carolina uh, area, you could go to them for kind of tips and advice, and they can help you navigate that particular road. And I like the work that they they did then, and I like the work that they do now. And it's uh, money education is something that's very very important. And actually, it was me even volunteering and interning at this nonprofit that really started me getting into the process and in the space of money and recognizing the importance of money in nonprofits and just in life in general. So as I was there, I had I had my uh, my intern mentor, his name was Halt, Halt, Halt well, his name was Hart Dahlhauser, shout out to you Hart. And um, so he was kind of guiding me and showing me some of the insights and sort of work that he does and just really nonprofit work in general. But one of the people that worked there was really, really high up and it was like, her, uh, the executive director, her name was Celeste uh, Collins. She's still the ED, the executive director out there. Wade Rogers, I think he's still out there. But one of the big, big fish that were part of this organization, her, her name was Sarah Brown. And I saw she recently retired as part of like, she was like a director, deputy director of the organization. So she was really high up on the organization's uh, chart, right? And it's still a small nonprofit. But I remember at the time, she I think she was in charge of communication and doing like community outreach and kind of just spreading the word. And I remember like thinking for a long time, I was like, you know, I wanted to make my name. I wanted to make a mark at this organization. And so I had been thinking about it, talked to Hart, who was my mentor uh, while serving in an internship. And I was like, hey, I think I'd like to talk to Sarah about having the organization start a Facebook page. And again, this is back in 2010. Facebook was really like two, three years old. I mean, it was really just because I think when I joined Facebook, it was in 2006 in college. So it was still like not even a half decade old. And so I said, you know, I want to talk to Sarah about this. He said, yeah, come out with a plan, figure out what you're going to want to say, yada, yada, yada. So I sit down with Sarah. I talk to her and I'm telling her about this and she's listening and all that jazz. And by the end of like this little five minute presentation, I'm like, you know, 22 years old. By the end of this presentation, you know, I'm sitting in her office, you know, it's nothing crazy. It's not like I had a slide or anything like that. She she looks at me and she goes, yeah, but I don't want to do this just because other people are doing it. And it was like, uh, it was like the way she said it, she was kind of saying to me like, yeah, just because it could be a good idea. And just because other nonprofits or other entities, and by then like, Big names, Coca-Cola, Toyotas, I mean, waste management, other, you know, big nonprofits and for-profits were getting in the game of social media. And she was saying, look, just because other people are doing it doesn't mean I want to do it or doesn't mean that we should do it. And I understood where she was coming from, but I was like, no, uh, this is something where it's a form of communication. And I think when, again, looking around the corner, we need to hop in on this and look. We're humble here at the Nonprofit Insider, but look, I was proven right. <laughs> and I think after leaving that internship, like six months later, sure enough, 
I think it was like two months after I left the non-profit internship, they ended up, I think, starting a Facebook cause Facebook page. So look, I, you know, I was right, you know, not always right, but sometimes I am. And one of the things I, I was thinking about when it comes to the social media space, right? From my point of view, so many nonprofits are in social media, not because they want to do it, but because they have to do it. And I think that when talking to Sarah at that point in time, my my theory was, it's not that I think we should have a Facebook page just to have a Facebook page and that um, it it puts us in a position to just do it. I was like, we need to do it because we have to do it. More and more people, and this is my thinking as again as a young 20-something, more and more people are moving into the social media space and it's not going anywhere. If it was one of those things where I thought maybe it was gonna be feeding fleeting, right? I'd say, you know, don't do it. But it was clear by that point in time, Facebook had overtaken MySpace as the dominant player in 2010. I said, listen you have to do it. Even if you don't want to, even if you begrudgingly don't want to do it, you have to do it. And I think that's a sediment that sticks even to today's world with nonprofits. A lot of nonprofits don't want to do social media. And I completely understand. It's a lot of work. Uh, Trying to figure out what you're doing in it can be kind of uh, cumbersome. A lot of nonprofits don't have a dedicated person to serve and working in the social media space and working on that platform. But from my point of view, social media and so much of social media is like it's like having a second website. You have to have it. Even if it's just for information sharing. And I think we see so much of social media and nonprofit space being that. It's a it's a way to share information. And I, I know there are a couple of times where I'm like, oh, I would love to have some Thai food this local restaurant in my neighborhood. I'd love to be able to go to this local donut shop, right? And one of the first things you'll do is you'll go to their website, but we know sometimes websites aren't updated as quickly and they don't have the flexibility to be updated as quickly. One thing about social media, they make it very easy. So I can go onto you know, Instagram or you could go on Twitter or Facebook or even TikTok, whatever the case may be, and you can see if that local operation is still open. You can see if they're closed during holidays. It gives you an extra layer of information that social media doesn't always provide, and it's very useful in that respect. But at the end of the day, with all that in mind, I get why nonprofits don't want to do it. Many nonprofits, and I think this is the big thing, many nonprofits don't have a direction when it comes to social media. I was in Houston back in 2020. I mean, this was like two months before the pandemic really started to get going. I was in Houston for like a conference, um, business development type of meeting, right? And so I'm there and they have a a really big head honcho uh, with a really big nonprofit talking about the social media space and different ways to raise money in the social media place. And this I mean, this, this is a guy, I can't remember his name right offhand, but he was talking about how St. Jude's Hospital brings in $5,000 a day on average just from Facebook alone. 
Now we know St. Jude's, right? They, they, they've caught flack in the past, right? They have a, a crazy amount of money. They have a five-year reserve. There's a lot of talk and conversations around St. Jude's because they're at the top. So when you're at the top, you're going to get talked about in all kinds of ways. But if you're bringing in $5,000 a day, that's $1.8 million a year just from Facebook. And we know they spend a lot of money. They, they have a lot of resources. They have a lot of talented people that are working in an organization doing a lot of amazing things. But still, they have a direction. They know, among all the other things, they do storytelling and share cool pictures and, and you know invite people to events and all that stuff. But for them, if you look at their Facebook, if you look at so much of their social media, they use it as a fundraising tool. And I think that's one of the big things with nonprofits. If you have a nonprofit and you are looking to have space in the social media world, you just have to have a direction. You don't have to worry about trying to be viral. You don't have to worry about trying to you know, have the most followers or be the next Kardashian of the nonprofit world. You're not looking for all that junk. You're looking for a form of consistency that works within your particular space. And having a direction, having a plan laid out is key. So many nonprofits have plans for fundraising. They have plans for events. They have plans for uh, where they want to go over the next two years. But nowhere in those plans do they have social media. And so just having something consistent, putting that in, if you can, into a budget, having it put into one of uh, your particular roles with one of your staff members is really all you have to do. And I've seen this on a couple of different occasions where one of my, some of my favorites that I've seen just in many years past, I see this a lot with shelters, specifically animal shelters. They do, a, so many animal shelters do an amazing job where their whole goal, of course, is to try to get animals adopted or spayed and neutered. And one of the things they'll just do, they'll just post animals. Here is, you know, fuzzy kitten world and you can adopt them. Here's, you know, Rex and Butch, the newest members of our shelter, you can come adopt them. Their direction for a lot of shelters is clear. You see this a lot with uh, theaters or museums. They'll showcase upcoming shows or maybe partnerships that they're doing. Hey, go to this local burger joint and 50% or 100% of all profits are going to be uh, donated to the local theater, right? I actually even just saw this not long ago with a prison release program and one of their and one of their uh, social media avenues is just sharing stories and fundraising. So they're sharing stories of people that were uh, convicted of crimes and they're innocent. And then they'll just talk about those particular stories and their family stories and fundraising. So look, I know with a lot of social media, a lot of folks are on social media in their personal life. They don't want to be on social media in their personal life. I, listen, I, like I said, if I didn't have to be on social media, let's be honest, would I? A lot of people wouldn't. Unless you're like an influencer and you're really, really at that next level, a lot of folks wouldn't want to use it. Nonprofits are the same. But if you have a direction and you know what direction you're going with your social media, that's going to make all the difference. One of the things I want to do here on the Nonprofit Insider Podcast is I want to leave space at the end of every episode to have a little bit of a revolving segment. Not something I would do every single week, but something I have the ability to switch up from time to time. And one of the first ones I want to introduce is a segment I'm calling Rapid Fire Books. 
Uh, one of the things is I want to be able to take you all on a journey on some of the books that I have had a chance to read that I think you all would appreciate, right? Oprah's been doing it. I'm sure Ellen, before she got taken off the air, was doing it. Uh, a lot of folks have done it, right? And so when you all, we're all in the nonprofit space to one degree or another, or we're interested in the nonprofit space. So I want to take the time, just real quick, kind of an in and out, no more than eight, nine, ten minutes to share a book that I maybe have read uh, that I think you all would really, really benefit from. And I'll just warn you right now, I am a nonfiction guy. I have not read Harry Potter. I get a lot of flack for that or Lord of the Rings or I think the last fiction book I read was in high school. I mean, at least for fun. I read, you know, some in college, but I think the last fiction book I read was maybe Angels and Demons by Dan Brown and like the Da Vinci Code. Uh, once I just, I was in high school and once I discovered nonfiction, I was reading like The World is Flat, Thomas Friedman, uh, uh, Malcolm Gladwell. Once I really started discovering those types of books, I kind of dropped the the fiction space. So it's going to be a lot of nonfiction, uh, probably not a whole lot of leadership books per se, uh, but just a lot of random books that I think you all would appreciate. So let, let, let's get into a couple right now. And one of the first rapid fire books that I want to mention is one that honestly changed so much of the perspective that I had in the world. And I've read a lot of really good books. And I, I actually keep a really good tally of all the books that I read. I get a lot of my books from the library. This is the type, I'm the type of person where I don't have the space, to be honest, to have a lot of books. And even if I did, I'm not a collector of books. Um, my girlfriend right now, she has probably 400, 500 books in her home. I have 10 books. And one of the books I have is this book I'm going to recommend. And it came to me, funny enough, by um, an individual in the, in the industry I work in now, where I was a part, back in 2019, I was a part of, of a work leadership program. And it was me and about a dozen other individuals. And I went to maybe like on the third meeting after like nine months or something like that. We're in San Antonio. We're driving to a post uh, work program event. The, the, the company I was working for, they sent me out to San Antonio and we're in the car and I'm like talking to this individual. And I was like, when we get to our destination, like all of us in this work program, we're gonna meet at this you know bar and grill type of thing. I asked this individual, I was like, I am very curious because this person was very knowledgeable. Her name is actually Josette Valdez. She's now uh, with, a, with a big company out there in, in the Miami, Florida area. I, I turned to Josette and I said, I'm interested in gaining as, I was like, I'm interested in gaining as much knowledge from you. And I'm just curious, do you have any book recommendations? Because I was in a point where I was doing a lot of reading, right? And so I said, do you have any book recommendations? I had just recently, like separated from my ex-wife, we were on the process and on the road of getting divorced. I had a lot of free time and I was reading a lot of books. And so I said, do you have any book recommendations? And she didn't even hesitate. She said, the book you need to read is a book by a lady named Susan Cain and it's called Quiet. And the full title of the book, you can read, look it up right now, but the full title of the book is called Quiet. 
The Power of Introverts in a World That Can't Stop Talking. And the author's name is Susan Cain. And so I said, no problem. Went immediately to, to the library, like online, reserved the book, picked up the book, devoured it. I mean, I ate this book in probably about a week, maybe two, honestly. Um, and normally I can be kind of a slow reader, right? Because I still have a life. I still have things going on. But I read this book so fast, and the author does a really amazing job of telling stories, bringing in anecdotes, bringing in research, bringing in real-life feelings and stories. And, and, and for me, the basic gist of the book is kind of what you imagine. The world, especially in Western hemisphere, right? We're talking the Englands, the Australias. We're talking parts of the Saudi Arabia's to a degree. We're talking the United States, the Canada's, the Mexico's. We we have a a lot of emphasis on being extroverted, and and for me personally, I feel like I've spent so much of my life, especially once I hit eighteen and I went to college, it was like a reset button for me, and and it was at that point in time I was like, you know what, I need to change how I view myself and how the world views me and reading, again, the world is flat, Malcolm Gladwell, reading uh, some Stephen Levette type books. I was like, you know what? The world really, really appreciates extroverts. And so I remember going to college and thinking, this is my time to create a whole new identity. That's how the name Swim really came to flourish. And I said to myself, I'm going to be extroverted. And not to say that I felt introverted before but i was like this is my opportunity to really go in a whole nother sphere of being extroverted and it's served me well it's given me a lot of opportunities it's put me in front of a lot of people it's had a chance to really cause me to blossom into a better version of myself but i always thought deep down that introverts were kind of like eh you know like, yeah, you're in the corner reading, again, Lord Lord of the Flies or something to that nature, some Lord of the Rings type books. Uh, you don't really talk a whole lot. You're not really smiling or bubbly or outgoing. I kind of realized or thought in my mind, the Western world appreciates this. This is what I need to be to be successful, to be better, to thrive, not only in the nonprofit space, but in the for-profit space when I was in that particular world for quite some time. So when she had suggested this book, I just read the first, and she has a really, really great opening. She talks about Rosa Parks being an introvert. I was hooked by that point. I mean, you're talking about an African-American, you're talking about a, an American legend, someone who looks like me, who changed the dynamics of the world she starts off with a really good story of Rosa Parks being an introvert. And just reading the book, you she does an amazing job of really detailing and explaining how so much of the world, especially in Western culture, denies or positions people that might be considered introvert into a corner, into a box. But some of the best ideas, some of the most amazing people, some of the smartest minds would probably consider themselves or have considered themselves to be introverts. And, and so when she had suggested, when Josette, uh, the leader of this program, has suggested I read this book, 
there was a part where she was like, you know, you're an amazing person, you're you're outgoing, yada, yada, yada. But if you want to be in a position to lead better, to learn better, to uh, to guide people to a, a better position of life, to a, a basically a, a better promised land, this is the book to, to read. And she was right. Um, I, I Like I said, I read that book so fast and it gave me the ability to really understand that deep down, we're all introverts and we're all extroverts. It's not either or, but there's so many instances when we're, you're in a meeting, someone's not talking. You're in a meeting, someone has an idea, and we gravitate almost naturally to the loudest person, the one who's talking to most. Uh, I, have, I have a membership to the, the Botanical Gardens. I always go to the brightest flowers, right? And that's not the best analogy, but I always go to what's the biggest, what captures my eye because we're all so busy we all have so much going on and so i go to what's capturing my attention where is the noise the loudest right a world that can't stop talking and so for me i thought to myself wow i have been denying not only a part of society that has contributed so much. Again, she starts off with a really good story of Rosa Parks, but I have denied so much of myself thinking that I need to talk. I need to breathe hot air or blow hot air just to get the attention, just to get the 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 praise or the love that I'm really looking for. So this is definitely one of the, the first books that I'm gonna recommend as a part of the Rapid Fire book segment. Again, I have no books. If you came to my house right now, I probably have a total of eight books. This is one of the books I have. So much so that I've actually purchased a couple of copies of this book and I've sent it to coworkers from time to time. Uh, this is one of the few books that I have in my collection that I own. And so it's one of the few books that I would recommend you own. And so with the rapid fire books one of the things i want to do with every segment i want to end it with a quote from the book so let me go ahead this is on page 42 of the book and she says and i quote we are we were urged to develop an extroverted personality for frankly selfish reasons as a way of outshining the crowd in a newly anonymous and competitive society but nowadays we tend to think that becoming more extroverted not only makes us successful but also makes us better people. We see salesmanship as a way of sharing one's gift with the world, end quote. And to be honest, nothing could be further from the truth, right? There are just so many people we know that just talk and talk and talk and give us so much bullshit, but deep down, they're not any better than any of us. So be sure to check that book out by Susan Cain. She had another book that recently came out called Bittersweet, so you can check that book out as well. All right, I think that's enough for today's episode. You can find us on Instagram at the Nonprofit Insider, or you can reach out to me at the Nonprofit Insider at Gmail. Send me an email. I got it in the show notes below. We'll see you on the next episode.